Well, God is good. Where are we? What are we doing? Oh, there we go. Good. That's why we have slides. All right, so for the, um, really a couple of uh, guests, um, we have been on a journey through the times and life of Jesus. Uh, they haven't really, this, the more recent sermons haven't been posted up on, uh, online or on a podcast because um, our tech guy, Josh, is on, a, uh, on vacation up in New Hampshire. When he gets back, we'll start putting them uh, up. But we've been on a, a sermon series on the times and life of Jesus. I, I think a lot of us know a bit about the life of Jesus. Uh, from reading the Gospels, but what we've been trying to do is dig a little deeper and get into some of the history and get into a little bit of what was life like for that time period. <clears throat> so we began with the, uh, the ministry of John the Baptist, how he uh, spoke uh, of, uh, of repentance and prepared the way of the Lord. And we were discussing that you need a spirit of repentance before you bring in the baptism of Jesus. Um, from that point, we talked about the childhood of Jesus. What are some of the things that we can learn about his childhood? There's not much that is spoken. Uh, and then last week, we, uh, Alan taught on Jesus being led away into the wilderness and then eventually is tempted by Satan. And so here is the next stage, the next place of the story of the time and life of Jesus. And this is really when he goes and he calls his first disciples, right? It's really the next stage, the next scene, if you want to take a look at his life as a movie, right? It's the next scene of his life. And so uh, we're going to be out of Matthew and also John today, but uh, let's take a look first at Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Oh, I'm in Mark, what happened? So Matthew 4.18, this is the calling of the first disciples, <clears throat> and it says, And Jesus, Yeshua, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately let their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and fathered him. <clears throat> so a pretty profound uh, scripture right there. Jesus is calling uh, the first disciples from the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard, like, teachings on the calling of the disciples. Anyone here, like, you've heard, like, some kind of teaching on the first disciples coming to the Lord, right? Jesus saying, follow me, and they respond. And so there, there, are, there are some common teachings on a, a couple of themes. One is just common teaching of what does it mean to be a fisher of men, right? Taking fishermen and making them poetically into fishers of men, right? We've all heard some type of sermon about that. Uh, there's also a component here is that the, the, the sons immediately follow Jesus. So there's two common themes, being fishermen and then immediately just dropping their nets and just going. And so those are common teachings that many of us have heard. And, and I wanted to take this, but I wanted to go a little deeper with it and get a little bit into the life and rather the time, the context of what it was like to be a first century Galilean man sitting there on the seashore and a rabbi, a teacher, a great teacher comes up to you and says, follow me. But what is that all about? And so we want to fill in some of the missing pieces here. And part of doing that to really get a, a greater depth on this call of the disciple, which is ultimately a call for us, 
uh, is to read a quick scripture verse in John chapter 1, which is telling the same story, but it's going to fill in a little bit of the missing pieces. John chapter 1, verse 43 says, The following day, so this is setting the same scene, just a different account of the scene. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Boom, that's it. The rest, we're going to talk and preach at it. So, what we have here is essentially a message on the calling of the disciples, which I'm calling Two Cities, One Call. Two weeks ago, I'm not sure if you guys recall it, hopefully you do, I was teaching on the difference between Nazareth and a town called Sipori, known as the Jewel of the Galilee. Does anyone kind of... All right, two of you, yes. <laughs> Sipori was a mile and a half, two miles away from Nazareth. Beautiful town, metropolis, surely. Jesus would have taught there. It was a heathen city. It was a mixture of a whole bunch of different people. Jesus doesn't call any of the disciples from there. Uh, Jesus himself never mentions that city. But we know that he was there and we learned about like, his childhood and going to that city and what it was like and that what good can come out of Nazareth and all this kind of stuff. And so what we have here are essentially another city. So two weeks ago when I preached, I pre- preached on largely supporting and what that means for us. And now I'm teaching on, all right, another city called Bethsaida. It's the city, not that Jesus was born in, but it's the city where five of the 12 disciples are called from. There's something important about this. Okay? <clears throat> what we have here is Sipori was the metropolis. It's maybe five miles from Bethsaida. Metropolis, academies, gymnasiums, libraries, universities, sophisticated town as I taught two weeks ago, like Manhattan. And then down the, the way to the northeast is a town called Bethsaida, a small little fishing town, Bethsaida, meaning uh, the place or the village of hunting or gathering or fishing, that kind of bringing in. Um, pretty poor, not much in the archaeological digs. Maybe at most eight to ten families live there. That's it. Eight to ten last names is what I mean. Right? Oh, look, the Johnsons live down there, the Greenockles live there, the Fishers there, the Kirkpatricks, and like for generations, they're all kind of interacting. But it's powerful because it's in this location, not in the place of the metropolis, not in the place of the universities, but in this small little fishing town that Jesus calls forth five of the twelve disciples Philip, James, John, Peter, and Andrew. So, to kind of fill this out a little bit, uh, I have this really cool video. Hopefully it'll work. Um, not only does it, I hope it works, but it's, it's I don't want to say it's long, but it's like five minutes. I hope you guys can handle that. But I think it really paints the picture of like what's going on in a small little fishing village called Bethsaida. All right? Well, so we'll continue with that. So if we can flip over that, if it all works, that'd be great. There you go. Judea, Samaria, Galilee, the Decapolis. He was born in Bethlehem, moved to Nazareth, grew up there, and taught for several years, centered in the area called Galilee. 
We've come to this part of the world to see how Jesus made disciples. We're at a city called Scythopolis, about 15 miles from where he grew up in Nazareth. But this city is not what people often think of when they think of the world of Jesus. This is a city of arena, theater, university called gymnasium, temples of wide streets and sewers and running water. An amazing place. And yet, Jesus didn't choose any of his disciples from here. So where did he go to find disciples? Come, let me show you. These simple ruins are the remains of a small village here in Galilee called Bethsaida. Meant Fishington or fishing village. Probably six, eight hundred people at most, maybe in eight to ten families. Not far from the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Not the kind of place I would think of to go to find disciples who are going to change the world. Look around you. Just a simple, what's called an insula. Extended family lived here. Over here I see what they think of the kitchen. Just a small room, maybe 40, 50, 60 people lived in this community and that's where they prepared food. There's kind of a residence room, maybe a sleeping room or a room where people work. Here's an open courtyard just out under the sky. But notice, no theaters, no stadium, no university, gymnasium as we saw yesterday. Just very simple rural village in Galilee. He came here. To me, shocking, stunning. What in the world is he doing leaving there to come here? He's in an area here called the Triangle by some. It's, it's a place where religious Jewish folks lived in the first century. People who were passionate about God, passionate about their way of life, passionate about obedience, passionate about the text. And they lived in small villages. Up there is Chorazin, over there is Capernaum. And this one is called Bethsaida, Fishington. Just a simple village. Now, I'd like to have you picture something. Imagine in this courtyard, children playing. Mom and dad sitting over there, grabbing children playing. Imagine now five little boys, dark hair, dark eyes, running around in some kind of a game. You see them? Let me give you some names Peter, Andrew, James, John. All five of those disciples came from this village. Think of who came out of this little town, a town of a few hundred people, maybe six, eight, ten family units, all of whom knew each other. Think of who came out of this place. I'll say it again. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Philip. Now can you imagine that Jesus came here to this simple place, simple stones, 
ordinary way of life and pick those five young men to be his disciples. So why did he come here? Well, I don't know the answer to that question. There probably are many answers, some of which I may never know, or you either, but it's in Galilee, right here, where the whole idea of disciple was most prominent in the ancient world. This is where people came to be disciples of the great rabbis. God had arranged history so that of all the places in the world, this is where that whole practice was happening. And so Jesus came here to make disciples. So what's a disciple? What really was it? And does that help us to understand both why Jesus' message exploded out into the world and does it have anything to say about what it means to be a disciple today? So if you'll come with me, let's go find out what was disciple. Come. There you go. Yeah, you can switch it. Thanks. I just love that little Middle Eastern music. That's why I wanted to keep it going. Hello, hello. There you are. All right, so why did I show you this little video? What one? Was it kind of cool? Yes. All right, thanks. All right, it's cool. It's awesome. Um, a great, great series. One of, it is, one of the reasons why I showed it is because uh, the man right there pretty much has my dream job. So I, I love just like watching it. Two, it's because he gives such a picture, right, going to the locations to see what they like really, really look like and takes in these interesting little uh, nuggets from it. And he leaves us off with the question, so like what, what does it mean to be a disciple? Now before we get into like what it really means to be a disciple, we need to get into a little bit of an understanding of why this village. And then we'll get into what it means to be a disciple. Because you cannot understand what it means to be a disciple if you do not understand what it's like to be a young boy a part of a family in that town. Because then you understand why Jesus did not go to Sipori, which is two miles from his hometown, or he did not go to Sisphalus, which is actually in Hebrew, Beit Sha'an, which is just 10 miles south of that town. How come he chose this town? So one reason is what I kind of talked on two weeks ago, is the notion of hard work, right? Uh, these boys are out fishing, doing manual labor, they got their blisters, they got their sweat, they understand these concepts of patience and hard work and etiquette and all this kind of stuff. But another key part is they live in this village which is highly, highly community oriented. These families are all living together, they're all like rubbing elbows, they're all like living a little too close for comfort in many regards. And these five disciples probably grew up together. They're growing up together. They're playing whatever games they played together. They're probably great friends, but then they're great friends one day, and then they're arguing the next day. I imagine Peter was a pretty tough dude to become friends with. I mean, he's a guy, when saved, cuts the ear off of a Roman centurion, right? What was he like before he was a saved, when he was a punk 12, 14-year-old kid? He probably was a little tough guy to hang out with, and these guys are going to be the disciples, right? There's another part to all of this uh, with this, uh, which is the reason. Uh, and it's because uh, this region of the Galilee uh, is known as the rabbinical triangle. 
Okay? In the video, they said the triangle with Bethsaida, Chorazin, and uh, Capernaum. Some people actually stretch it out uh, to a place called Tabcha. Doesn't really matter for our purposes. But in this location right here, what has been going on? We know this from rabbinical writings. That for generations, what's been happening is people have been moving up to the Galilee that are very, very serious about their faith. Families are moving there. They want to get out of the craziness of city life. They want to kind of set up their own communities. And their heart's desire is to essentially live by the texts, the scriptures of the Lord, and really to live in these communities where they're able to really just love the Lord and train their children in the ways in which to go. There's a lot of rabbinical schools that are happening up there. It's like if you wanted to become a rabbi, you move to the lower Galilee. That's what you do. And so what happens here is in the context of this area, the people that live there, the ultimate expression of their community and culture was to study the word of God and to become a disciple of a rabbi. This is what people move there to do. Your ultimate goal and revelation for your children were to study so that they too could become a disciple and they could become a rabbi. This is what you did living in the lower Galilee. And so we know a little bit about their lives from uh, different texts. From the ages of birth to 12, you're learning how to read. Uh, between the ages of essentially 13 and 16, this is when uh, you would all go to school. And the rabbis would start to teach you about the, about the Bible, about biblical stories. Then by the time of 17, 18, they start to introduce to you other rabbinical writings. And then essentially what happens here is a test. A test. Do you have what it takes to be a disciple of one of the rabbis in the Galilee? You literally would take a test. Oral exams. Quote this scripture. It's like, literally. Like, uh, Deuteronomy 6. The whole chapter, please. You have to memorize like large portions of scripture. Okay? This is what was like the ultimate thing for every kid and every family living in the Galilee. We know this from a whole bunch of different historical texts. And they're living there. So why does Jesus go there? Well, there's a couple of things. One, the context of their community was already wanting to follow a rabbi. And the second reason is, these five boys didn't hack it. They didn't make it. They didn't pass the test. They were simply not good enough to be a disciple of a rabbi. Now, why do we know that? Because what are they doing when Jesus comes along the shore? They're fishing. If you failed out of the discipleship school... In quote-unquote shame, what do you do? You take up the trade of your father. That is what you do. And that's what these five boys were doing. Doing the trade of their father because they failed. They failed. But inside of their heart, there was still the ultimate expression of desire. I want to be... A disciple. It's what I want. 
It's what my families wanted. It's what my father's fathers wanted. That's why we live here. And so there are two things that we can really learn from this context. One, Matthew chapter 4, 22, which we already read. They immediately put down their nets, left their father, and went when Jesus said, follow me. Why did they immediately, immediately leave? Because it was the ultimate desire of their heart. What would cause them to take all of their work equipment, throw it down, and run after this rabbi when Jesus comes to them and says, follow me. Their belongings, their money, their father, their family, they run. Because in their culture, there was a complete expression of desire to want to be a disciple of any rabbi. And so this beckons a question for us, getting into what it means to be a disciple. And that question is, what is the ultimate expression of your culture? What is the ultimate expression, ultimate desire inside of your heart? It's quite simple. Whatever you immediately run to. What do you run to? Huh. When it's time to relax, when it's time to just put things down, when it's time to put your work down, what do you run to? Whatever you run to, you are a disciple of that. When you put your work down, whatever you run to, you are a disciple of that master, of that rabbi. TV, food, alcohol, drugs. Facebook, buying things, working more, you're a disciple. Whatever you immediately run to, you are a disciple of that. But these boys, in their heart of hearts, their desire was to be a disciple of a rabbi. Mm. Amen? Right. Another thing that we learn is more of the why do they immediately go. Yes, their heart's desire, since they were little boys, was to become a disciple. That was like becoming president of the United States, right? It's like for a little boy today, like becoming a U.S. Marine. It's like, this is what your culture did. But another reason why they immediately are willing to do this is because they, they recognize that they failed. They failed the tests from previous rabbis. And now we have something. This rabbi, this rabbi Jesus, wanted them. Every other rabbi is like, sorry kids, you don't know enough. You don't speak well enough. You remember when Peter is speaking and the rabbis are like, who is this uneducated man? Right? It's because he, he, he's, he's not classically trained. They leave because they're like, a rabbi? Like, there's no test. They don't have to take a test. They don't have to prove to Rabbi Jesus that they're worthy to be a disciple. This guy just comes by and says, you're good enough. I believe in you. I know the other rabbis didn't receive you, but I'm receiving you. Come, be my disciple. And they're like, I don't have to take a test? No, you don't have to take a test. You don't have to take a test. Wow. 
Um, it really would de- depend on the, the school that you're a part of, right? So in one part, it could be like an actual like oral exam. What do you mean? Would it be like a formal, okay, we're going to have the selection process? Nah, it, it wasn't quite like that. It was more like when you were ready, you know? But then when you were ready, you get to a point like, well, I got to, it's, it's time. I got to, they haven't, they haven't, it's like, you know what it's like? It's like being in the minor leagues in baseball, yeah. right? You're trying, you're trying, you're trying, you're waiting for the big day for them to call you up. You're ready now. And then eventually you're like, well, they haven't called me up and I'm 30. It's probably, I'm not making it to the majors, right? right? It was a little bit more like that in, in most of the schools. Uh, but part of it was, you know, the, this is the whole thing with Jesus ask, always asking questions. You know, he's always asking questions when he's teaching. Because it's a very like rabbinical way. Like, all right, what do you know? Let me ask you the question. See what you've gleaned and what you've learned. So on, on this notion of, of Jesus believing in them um, is this. Uh, many people meditate and believe in Jesus, which obviously we need to do, okay? But have you ever contemplated the reality that Jesus believes in you? He has actually chosen you to follow him. You have been called to be a disciple. That means he believes in you. You are good enough to change the world. So you get this like defeatist attitude of like, oh, I don't sing well enough, I don't talk well enough, or I can't do this. You have to understand that it's going in complete opposition to what Jesus says about you. The very fact that he's revealed himself to you and has said, follow me, means that you are good enough. And that he believes in you to do it. So we can't let Satan steal that reality from you. So you have to meditate on that. Meditate on the belief in God and in Jesus, of course, but also meditate on what he says about you. Psalm 139, you're fearfully and wonderfully made, right? He knows every hair on your head. How glorious and wonderful is that we can be called sons and daughters of God. You are the righteousness of God, which we were reading out today during worship. You have to put that on because you're called to be a disciple. And so now the thing is, all right, so what is a disciple? And most of us say a, dis- a disciple is someone who is a disciplined student. That's true, absolutely. But let's, uh, let's just dig into this a little bit more. In Scripture, repetition is important. It's not important. It is actual importance. Like we could just say holy is the Lord God Almighty, but no, it says holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In biblical language, re- repetition of words is importance, like bing, bing, exclamation point, highlighted, circle, circle, right? right. So what we have here is, you know, I'm going to ruffle some feathers, I'm usually good at that. Um, that's right, and that's why there's not many of us, all right? <laughs> what are you? What are you? Yeah, the best thing is really just to say a son or a daughter of God. That's really the most beautiful thing to do. And I agree with that. I was struggling if I should put that up there or not when I was doing this. Most of us, if not all of us, will say we are Christian. All right, you're a Christian. All right, absolutely, you're a Christian. But in the scriptures, do you know uh, that the word Christian is only mentioned three times? Only three times. One time, it's actually done in a very negative context. I think it's the first time that it comes up. It's by King Agrippus to Paul, and he says that, you know, you're one of these Christians. You're a Christian. Uh, which means a little Christ. And it was actually done in like a poking fun way. Like, oh, you little Christ. Right? 
Now, we've adopted that we are all Christians. Well, here's the problem in the world. There are too many Christians and not many disciples. Now, Christian isn't really found in the New Testament. It, it kind of is. It's mentioned three times. Uh, what did the early Christians say about themselves? When they're talked about, when they're asked, and when Paul is writing, and when Paul is speaking uh, through the book of Acts, uh, actually he refers, and, and many of the disciples refer to themselves as being a part of the way. Like, what are you? We're a part of the way. Woo! I mean, I'm getting like rolling the Holy Ghost just saying it. You have to understand, they weren't there to create a new religion. They weren't there to create Christianity. Uh, 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 uh. They were there as a sect of Judaism. We're part of the way of Yeshua, the rabbi. That's what school of thought we're a part of. And people are like, whoa, okay, the way. So really, biblically, if someone asks you technically, what are you a part of? You really should be saying, I'm a part of the way. The way of what? The way of the Son of God. Okay, well, what is that? Oh, let's talk. All right, so repetition is important. Well, disciple. Reference 273 times. You're not supposed to be a Christian. Ugh! Because no one knows what that means. No one knows what that means. You're called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus. <laughs> and that takes on a whole different thing. My God. A completely different connotation of everything. Why? Because in the context of the first century, what does it really mean to be a disciple? There's a, a tractate in rabbinical literature called the Avot. It's a tractate in uh, rabbinical literature. Jesus definitely knew about it. The tractate has a story, and in the story it says, well, what does it really mean to be a disciple? And the way that the rabbis would respond is that you are to cover yourself in the dust of your rabbi. Many of you have heard of this because I've talked about this before. Very simple. How do you become a disciple of a rabbi? Very simple. You cover yourself in the dust from his feet. You eat, you breathe, you live, you sleep. Everything that your rabbi does. Everything. You're supposed to be so close to him and nagging him so much and wanting to learn everything. How does he breathe? How does he talk? What does he think about? How does he say this? How does he do all this kind of stuff? You're so close to him that you're covering yourself from the feet from his sandals. So much so that eventually there should be no differentiation between disciple and rabbi. And at that point he says, all right, you're ready. You're now a rabbi too. This is why. You ever wonder why Jesus always has to get alone to pray? He wasn't being some religious fanatic like, I just need to pray by myself. It really was, in some regards, practical. In the first century, if you had disciples, they annoy you. I mean, if you're not the son of God and have unbelievable patience, they're like always on you. They're always asking questions like, why, why, why? Rabbi, tell me this, but what do you, what do, you do about this? You see the bird do? Why does the bird do this? And what do, we, what do we eat? What do we not eat? How do you... Just questions, 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 questions over and over and over and over again because they want to be you so bad. They adopt your personality. They adopt it. Jesus, you know, at least every person, I need to get away and pray. Like these guys, these 12 guys are on me. They're, they're with me all the time. 
First thing you see waking up, man, this is why they're camping out by the sea. First thing you see when you wake up, first thing you see when you close your eyes, they, I mean, this is what it means to be a disciple. Little different than ah, I'm a Christian. Woo! Worship team, come on down, please. So, what does it mean to be a disciple? You cover yourself in the dust of his feet, meaning you live so closely that you want to be like him. You nag him, nag him, nag him. You are so close. There's no differentiation between the two. Yes, you're a disciplined student, but you are so close, and you have such a heart's desire to serve him, to be with him, to learn from him. It is different than going to church on Sunday. It is you're going to church 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is Paul the Apostle saying, pray without ceasing. It is, you cannot, you will keep yourself separated and not defiled of the world because you're living so close to them, there's no time for anything else, is it? So we got to start teaching and preaching and talking about it's not enough to be a Christian. You have to be a disciple. Listen about this. How many Christians are on planet Earth? Jose, what, like one billion, they say? One to two billion? You have one to two billion Christians on planet Earth. And look at the Earth. Twelve disciples. Look what they did. That's the difference. With twelve, you can do more in the spirit than you can with two billion Christians. Twelve. Twelve, they topple entire kingdom, one of the most powerful empires the world has ever seen, the Roman Empire. Twelve unlearned men, five of which come from a little podunk town. Unbelievable. So what keeps us from being a disciple? What keeps us into the confines of just being a Christian? The first thing is just the notion of cultural Christianity. Well, you know, the Western world, we have this kind of, kind of Christian culture. These are people that just go to church on Christmas and Easter, maybe. You know what I'm talking about, right? I, I, I don't think there's really anyone here that really is a part of that. Uh, but I have to confess, I think that there are some of us that are a part of the other three aspects of what it means or how and what keeps you from being a disciple. One, you just adopted this cultural Christianity thing. You know, just be good, love people, show up on Christmas. Yeah, it's all good. You're a good person, right? Like I said, I don't think there's really anyone here. I think the other thing that really keeps us from being a true disciple is that you already are a disciple. You already are. You cannot be a disciple of more than one thing or one person. So what and who is your teacher? What and who is your rabbi? You can't have two rabbis. You can't have two masters, as Jesus says. So what keeps you from being a true disciple? Well, it's not that you aren't a true disciple. You are a disciple. You're just a disciple of some other rabbi. 
TV, Facebook, self-image, money, more money, college. I need a bigger house. I need to fulfill my self-pleasure through all of these things. Those things are my rabbis. Well, then you're not going to put down your nets. You're not going to go. Oh, you're not going to go. Three is a realization of belief or a lack thereof. You actually may not realize that he has called you to be his disciple. That's good, man. You may actually not realize that he believes in you. You little pimple out face, receding hairline guy that you look in the mirror. He believes in you. He's called you to him. See, you got to adopt the belief that, wait, he is calling to me to be his disciple. That means he believes in me. That means I can follow him. That means I can do what he has done. No, actually, you are going to do even greater things than your rabbi. Holy moly. Holy Ghost fire. This is the story of Peter. Remember when he walks out on the water? Remember he's walking on the water and he's, Lord, is that you? And he's walking on Jesus' water and he beckons Peter to come and Peter steps on the water and he starts to walk. What happens to Peter? What happens to him? He, he, he starts to sink, right? You, guys, you know what I'm talking Like he steps out on the water and boop, he goes in the water, right? You know that story? All right, hopefully. And everyone's like, well, how come Peter, how come Peter couldn't walk on water? Well, you know, he didn't believe in Jesus. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong theology. He believes in Jesus. He sees Jesus walking on water, doesn't he? His eyes and gazes on Jesus. He's like, I believe in Jesus. He's right here and he's walking on water. He believes in Jesus. Why does he sink? Because he does not believe in that moment that he is able as a disciple to do what his rabbi can do. That's why he sinks. He doesn't lose trust in Jesus. He loses trust in the realization that he too can do what his heavenly father can do. Jesus, of course, can walk on water. He's walking on water. I can't walk on water. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You're a disciple. You can do it. You can raise the dead. You can speak in new tongues. You can cast out demons. You can change empires. You can speak before kings and queens. You can raise the dead. You can cause angels to rejoice and demons to shudder. Be cast to hell. You can overcome temptation and sin. He was tempted, but he sinned not. You are the righteousness of God. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Yes, it is possible with Holy Ghost. And that's why there's 2 billion Christians on planet Earth and nothing changes. What we need are 12 disciples. Amen? Last one. What keeps you from being a disciple? I believe really what it comes down to is you have not fully received a revelation. A revelation. Like a true spiritual revelation 
of the love the Father for you. When we receive a download from heaven of a revelation that his love for me, for you, is so profound that he just couldn't handle it anymore. And he had to come running after you. And he had to come down to earth and humble himself as a babe and raise himself up from death to reconcile himself to you. And for you to be reconciled by him until you adopt the understanding of the greatness, the depth, the height, the width of the love of the Father through Jesus for you, you will never have a grid for what it means to be a disciple. We need, in this place, a revelation. A revelation like you have never had before. A revelation that is greater and grander than even when you first got saved. I mean a Holy Ghost ripping away of the veil of your heart so you are able to receive and understand how beautiful and awesome is the blood of Jesus to wipe away all sin, to make you righteous, to make you a new creation. That you now are washed clean and you are called now to be more than even a disciple, to be a son, to be a daughter. Closing up today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I read it at the end of worship. Worship team, you can just like start going for the ghost. And he, Jesus, died for all. And he, Jesus, died for all. If you have a Bible, open up, man. Read every word. Let let, us download a revelation of love. And he, Jesus, died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves. That's a disciple. But rather live for him, Jesus, who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him, thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That's love. He who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, I pray right now, right now, a revelation of that. He who knew no sin became sin for us. On behalf of Christ, I ask this of you to be a disciple of one thing, Paul is saying. Be a disciple of Jesus. And I'm telling you, the only way that you can become a disciple is when you get a revelation of love. That the love of Jesus is more powerful than the love of television. 
the love of Jesus is more powerful than the love of money. That the love of Jesus is more powerful than pornography and cigarettes and alcohol. Oh! It is the only way. Everything else is you. Everything else is striving. Everything else is religion. Love. Love is the only way. Come on. Who wants to be a disciple? Jesus. Raise your hand. You want to be a disciple? It's time to say goodbye to your days of being a Christian. It's time to say hello to the days of being a disciple. Jesus, Jesus. Come on. Alan, can you come on down, please? Alan. Bill, can you come on down, please? Jose, can you come on down, please? Dana, can you come on down, please? Annabelle, can you come on down, please? If you, right now, feel a place in your heart that you need a revelation of God's love, that you need a place to now begin to walk as a disciple, no longer just a Christian, I want you to come on down. And we want to just pray with you. We want to stand with you in prayer and in belief. Say goodbye of your old teachers, of your old rabbis, the other things that instruct you. It is time to say goodbye to those things which instruct you and say hello to he that should 